Welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. The storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors. A clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Oh, yes, and I bid you several welcomes to a very, very exciting day in the good listening to Clearing. We've got a natural storyteller. Uh, Mac McCartney is in the good listening to Clearing. Welcome, Mac McCartney. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So just to blow a bit of happy smoke at you, I've been particularly intrigued and interested to speak to you. I've known about you for several years. Uh, you are the founder of Embercombe which is uh, an inspirational social enterprise, which I know and fully expect you'll tell us all about. Uh, you're an international speaker, writer and change maker. And um, what I love about you also is the enigma of being uh, an elder, a sort of spiritual elder. It says about you in, in what, you know, the copy that's about you, that Mac McCartney has a foot in several worlds, which I also think of as being desire lines, which you know we'll riff on later. As I mentioned, you're founder of Embercombe, and um, you're the author of The Children's Fire, which is a very profound book that I found myself referencing in several of the leadership programs that I was running. So I, I, I got hooked by you and wanted to meet you. Also, I've known some people that have been to various of your seminal courses, The Journey and the Descent at Embercombe. So that's a bit of happy smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so how's morale? What's your story of the day, Mac McCartney? Um, morale is good. Uh, but it's complex, Chris. I've, um, my wife is unwell. Uh, my little boy uh, every day grows stronger and uh, he's five and I'm 73. So every day he grows stronger, I grow weaker. Gosh. And um, on, on, at least on physical level. Um, and life is very joyful and very full and very rich. But at the same time, you know, it's complex. We've just moved home uh, and it feels like I'm spinning quite a few plates and keeping things moving and um, enjoying it but also uh, quite focused and need to remain so probably. Yes I, I absolutely love that the sort of seven ages of man implicit in as I grow older they grow stronger which is the natural order of things but I, I, I appreciate aging is a profound thing and you know I'm, I'm going to be 60 in about two weeks time so I'm feeling <laughs> an equivalent sort of existential with you know the age of my children so that's very very relatable yeah 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 and by the way I'm, I'm I love storytelling metaphor and analogy and I was particularly interested uh, to curate you through the journey of this podcast because it's full and suffused with metaphor so I'm really fascinated to know with all of your um, you know, all of your wisdom and all of your experience um, in, as you, I did describe, you have your foot across several worlds. Are you actually a shaman? Because I think of you as being someone that sort of, you know, has the foot in two worlds in that way. I couldn't find the word literally shaman about you, but that's what I think of you as being a bit like. 
Um, I never use that word ah, okay. uh, to describe myself. Uh, I, in fact, I'm a little bit, um, it's probably why you didn't find it. I'm a little bit allergic to it. Uh, these days, kind of everybody's a shaman, everybody's a medicine woman, medicine man. And it's, I find it a little tiresome. Yes. So I am whatever I am. And, um, and if that sort of has some mystery or magic or power to it, then all for the good, as long as I direct it in ways that are helpful to, to other human beings in life. But I'm, most of all, I just think of myself as a, a um, and indeed I find uh, helpful to think of myself as a dad, a friend, uh, a husband, and uh, a rather flawed human being that's just trying to doing his best. That's a wonderful answer. Um, much more sophisticated than me just saying, what do you do? I'm really happy that you've said you're, you've got a happy allergy to being a shaman. <laughs> your purpose is really wonderful, though. It says of you, and you've said about yourself, your purpose is to touch hearts, fire imagination, and crucially invite courageous action to better serve our world. And all your work is aligned to that mission, which I know Embercombe has set out to do as a sort of energetic hub for you as well. Yeah, yes, that's true. I mean... Uh... I think that was probably engagement with indigenous people that really brought home to me uh, that any sort of uh, whatever spiritual journey we might be on, if we're on one at all, and I think I'd probably say that we all are uh, on one level or another, uh, but if it doesn't somehow, um, if it's not observable in some kind of action, embodied in action in some ways, then it's almost like uh, we've received a gift, but we haven't been generous enough to share it. So um, yes, courageous action, because I think most action that's directed towards uh, benefiting, you know, our world, as it were, at this critical time is likely and, and of necessity is courageous. And your really seminal book, The Children's Fire, when I first heard the sort of epicentric story of it, and by all means, you know, rather than me spoil that, uh, would you like to just share the epicentric story at the heart of it, of course, which is the fire itself? But, but rather than me tell you what I think it is, why don't you tell our audience? Sure. Well, um, in, in brief, I mean, the, uh, shared with me was this idea that Indigenous leaders long time ago, those people that I learned from, uh, would sit... Um, struggling with the question of how, how do they deal with the humanity of the chiefs, women and men who sat around that circle and the fact that most chiefs over time begin to serve rather more the best interests of the chiefs rather than the people that they serve, uh, came up with this idea of a little fire at the centre of the council, which they called the children's fire, and a pledge that was required from each chief uh, to that fire, saying that no law, no action, no decision, nothing of any kind would be permitted to go out of the council that would harm the children. <clears throat> and um, I, I, it doesn't take too much thought to imagine how much more complicated that made their task, uh, particularly when it was understood that it's not just human children, but the young of all kind. In other words, it's a pledge to life. And it causes a, a leaders to pause. And my uh, mentors suggested to me that in Britain's own indigenous past, uh, evident to them were that uh, 
those same people saw the world very much as their own grandfathers did and grandmothers in the, in the sense of beholding the world with reverence, uh, understanding really that uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to the lives that we have and to live them as well as we could. And so that led me on a big journey really into uh, uncovering and excavating our own indigenous past here in Britain. And ultimately that led to a journey to the Isle of Mona that was once at one time, 2000 years ago, the spiritual epicenter of our uh, sort of pre-Roman um, history. And that took place in the winter of 2009 in January and, and a rather epic and wonderful and, and um, <laughs> um, unwise journey that I undertook. This yeah. was the Anglesey journey, wasn't it? Where you went That's right. following yes. the stars with, with nothing but just your feet to, to sort of yes. towards. Yes, no, no tent or stove and um, uh, wild food, which I gathered and, and processed myself. Uh, no map, no compass, just the stars and the sun and, and this wonderful sort of um, reading the landscape and feeling my way uh, northwest and, um, and every step going deeper into the ancient story of who we are on these islands, uh, which incidentally, just to mention, because it's always a delicate point, um, we always were a mixed, mixed race people. So people of every color, hue, people of all different kinds, all the manner of diversity that we can imagine uh, were here thousands of years ago. And, uh, and so when I say the people of these islands, I am really referring to every, every, every soul that somehow blundered, lost their way or navigated their way to these islands and spent a bit of time and India ultimately called this home. Yes. And it strikes me as being both sort of Native American Indian in its intention of connection to nature in what you did, but also quite a monk-like pilgrimage as well in, in what you did. Well, yes. Um, so yes and no to both, really, Chris. I mean, it is undoubtedly true. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to those Native Americans who took me on, a rather unlikely subject as I was when they first met me. And, but their theme, and that has been so with indigenous people that I've met now from all places of the world, has, all, has been, uh, we can work with you, we can, you can participate in our ceremonies and these kind of things, but in the end, you know, uh, we will know, these are not your ceremonies, this is not your history, this is not who you are, you have your own land, your own history, it's just that it's been a curtain has been drawn across it. And so it remains a mystery to you. And now your task is in direct communication with the mountains, moorland, streams, woodlands, lowland, floodplains of your own land. And that is so, um, so deeply exciting, I think, once we begin to get over the awesome uh, task that it represents. Uh, sorry, what was the second thing? So Native American and then... And a monk-like... Monk -like. yes. yes, well, I am very un-monk-like -monk in, in that I'm um, uh, uh, endless battle throughout my own life, really, between hedonism and, uh, and sort of um, 
application to what I see to be my task. <laughs> so I love all things sensual and I'm very sort of um, of this earth and and love nothing better really than being in that place and in relationship. But there is also an ascetic side. So I do adore sort of um, that that sort of lone journey, a vigil going into dark, difficult, and uh, preferably physically robust environments, then invite me to dig deep and, and sort of discover just another little piece of the layer of who I am. And also to somehow try and clear the way between me and the mystery that intrigues me, that I could listen a little better and hear a little, um, a little better. And there's implicit courage in that, almost a courage in stepping towards the dark night of the soul, courage to swim away from the reef. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm using lots of metaphor here, but that's sort of by happy design in what I love talking about too, actually. So thank you. Yeah, at all. And then it's about courage, I'd say, you know, it's interesting courage, isn't it? Because I think I've, I've been frightened about many things in my life and I still am. So courage then becomes... It's not the absence of fear, it's somehow just making the choice to walk towards it. And uh, I'm sure there are various things which I uh, decline the offer to, uh, but in general, it feels a very important principle for guiding a life. And the preciousness of time is very interesting as well. And, and by the way, sincerely, thank you so much for saying yes. I did get in touch quite left of field, but you immediately said yes. And I'm very intrigued by, um, you know, until you ask the question, the answer is always going to be no, but also what's meant for you won't pass you by as my own philosophy. And mm. so I was just really grateful to you in investing your time in being here in the Good Listening To Clearing. So thank you for that. Not at all. My pleasure. So I'm really intrigued to curate you through the uh, storytelling metaphors. There's going to be a clearing, a tree. We're going to shake your tree. There's some alchemy, some gold, a couple of random squirrels a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So um, Mac McCartney, let's get you going then if you're happy to get going at this point. So what is, where is a clearing like for you, metaphorically or literally? Where does Mac go in all the sort of vision questing you've done to get clutter-free, inspirational and able to think? Hmm. So you, your questions, I think you, you gave five minutes or something for the consideration of all of these questions. And, and I, I, I'm afraid to say that I think I rather exceeded that. <clears throat> oh, and by I, the way, that's a really good observation. It's so people don't overthink it. So it's five minutes to have thought about, but I actually really like it if, people, if it takes people to a bit of a depth charge of the mind and the soul. Yes, yes. My, so my rather maybe unsatisfactory answer to that first question is that I think it's a state of mind. It's a, it's a place that I've got to know in myself. That is, um, that I can uh, access, that clearing is a place that I look to access wherever I am and in whatever circumstances. But it's always a place that's deeply connected uh, to nature. And, and by that, I mean literally outdoors somehow, given I, I suspect that almost everywhere is nature, including ourselves. But So one place would be by the huge Japanese oak that grew in the garden when I was a child 
and under whose boughs I played for many years with my brothers. Um, that is, you know, I, I've, I've been back to visit that tree uh, to say thank you. I, I just sort of feel that somehow uh, I grew under the guidance of that tree. I could choose uh, the small grove of oak trees that is growing around the stone circle in Embercombe, unplanted by us, planted by jays who gather the um, who gather the acorns from surrounding woods and then planted them around our stone circle, of which there is a story, of course. But so those trees um, mean a lot to me. Or I could say the oversized Christmas tree that somebody must have planted in the garden of the house that was at once part of Embercombe, under whose boughs I slept with my little um, sort of two-month-old child in the afternoons and cuddle him close and we went we would go to sleep together under that tree that was later cut down uh, by the people that purchased the property. But all of these places and a thousand others represent to me this place of deep restfulness and the place where I can somehow connect to all the things that I love and have importance to me. Thank you. That's a, a, a delicious answer to where you're clearing. So your clearing is within, but trees are the main thematic through line in that. I think they are, yes. Yes. And where is the Japanese oak in, in geographically? Well, geogra uh, rather uh, uninspiringly, um, it's in Southern Coalfield. Uh, <laughs> if, if, it, if it still exists, um, north of Birmingham. Uh, but of course, we're going back to the early 1950s. I was born in 1949. So seven miles from Birmingham, but on the edge of Sutton Park, where Henry VIII uh, once hunted wild boar, several thousands of acres of marsh and woodland and lakes and streams and lovely places. But that is the location. And um, so uh, thank you to that Japanese oak. Um, I have, we're probably going to go back and visit again this summer with my little boy, and I'm not quite sure if we'll find it there. I, I hope you do. And I love the fact you, I, I couldn't help hearing that you went back to it to say thank you. Yes. That's constant in one's life. That's so relatable, beautiful. Mm. So we're in a, a sort of multifaceted treescape of your clearing, which is just lovely to, to be there. So if I may now, I'm going to arrive with a, another tree in your clearing, which is a bit waiting for Godot-esque and deliberately existential, which is where we're going to shake your apples to see which storytelling, which stories fall out of your tree. It doesn't have to be an apple tree, obviously. So yeah. this is where you've had five minutes or as long as you've needed to have thought about four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention and borrow from the film up. That's a bit more oh, squirrels, you know, what never fails to grab your attention. And then a quirky or unusual fact about you. Mac McCartney, we couldn't know until you tell us. So however you'd like to interpret that, over to you to shake the canopy of your tree. Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, so the first one that I felt was unavoidable, I have to say that that garden and that I will, that I lived in, well, lived in, I did pretty much live in this, um, but for the first few years of my life, or let's say from three to about, um, nine. There were actually two houses in that period. 
But that garden, my parents and particularly my mother's uh, strong invitation that our place was outdoors. And it's not that she just didn't want us in the house, though I'm sure we got under her feet to some extent, but she loved the garden and the outdoors. I was very fortunate. The garden was quite big and we just ran out sort of uh, with joy in our hearts, really, to be to be liberated into this gorgeous playground. My parents gave us a corner of the garden that became known as the little corner. And in that corner, we could do anything. Uh, and we did, you know, so we, we, we smelted metal. We, we made bows that were seriously powerful. We hammered swords into being and armor and we, we did everything. We, we had a mini explosion when we mixed something we shouldn't have done, I guess, with the chemistry set. We had, uh, we just, we climbed trees and fell out of them and, and built buildings and tunneled. We tunneled in that place and, and uh, got apprehended by a, a local policeman who was on duty <laughs> by the garden and heard this noise coming from underground. Must have freaked him out. But anyway, it's the rather gruff and nervous voice asking, who's there? And a sort of long silence and a rather squeaky, childish voice saying, it's us, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Playing is the answer, I think. You're sort of playing out your own sort of familial Arthurian legend, forging <laughs> armour, blacksmithing, mining, alchemy yes. gold, which is coming later, by the way. I love all that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. We adored it. We just enacted, you know, a, any stimulation we got. So, so if it's raining, it was equatorial act. Africa. So if it was snowing, it was the Yukon or Alaska. If it was hot, it was the Sahara Desert. You know, we, we just plunged into our imaginations. And, um, and my parents allowed us to. Um, one one um, brother mentioned to me that he thought that if they did what they allowed us to do now, they'd certainly be in prison. <laughs> <laughs> But the health was, and safety executive would have something to say. Right. That's right. It was definitely not safe, but it was. But how lovely in your sort of journey, Muning, the idea that your mother was the one that encouraged you to go feral. <laughs> yes, yes. And she really did. I mean, she is the one who, who, who suggested one day we make a little house for the fairies. And, and, and I was intrigued. And so she went into how she, when she was a little girl, had built this tiny little house with a tiny little bed inside it with thistle down on the bed and, and all these gorgeous little things. And then a little bit of food, tiny bit of food. And then the next morning to come down and visit it and see if the food was still there. And of course, the next morning it came down, the food had gone. And there was a, a sixpence, a sixpenny piece, as we had then, just there. And all those sort of lovely little... Um, it's the quintessence of childhood. That's so lovely. And um, did your mother um, live long enough to see Embercombe realised? By the way, she did she did? And there's a, a tree, a horse chestnut tree, growing at Embercombe that I planted for her while she sat about five metres away, wrapped in a, in a blanket. And as I planted it, I I went through everything I could remember. She was almost 90. Everything I could remember 
of how she had supported me, stood by me, how we'd laughed, cried, argued, fought. Um, all the, I really put her through some tough stuff, really. I mean, I disappear for months on end, once for a year without word. She ended up ringing uh, Bangor in North Wales police and asking if they could just check to find out if I was still alive. And uh, uh, much to her surprise, the person answering the phone said, uh, well, I can tell you right now, Mrs. McCartney, he's alive and appears to be uh, well. And she was satisfied with that, but she never asked herself, how come this police sergeant on the phone seemed to know me by name and had uh, had this information for her, <laughs> which was um, rather, I, I still very grateful to that police officer, actually, because it put my mum's mind at rest. But that tree grows. And now this is a really wonderful, I love this thing, Chris. My little boy is learning to climb trees on the tree that was planted for his grandmother that she watched being planted. And he calls it his the grandma tree. And the other day, he just suddenly started going up it like a ladder until he was probably about uh, nearly 30 feet high up in this tree. And I said, what are you doing? I called up to him because I was nervous, but I didn't want to make him sort of uh, panic. So what are you, Kai, what are you doing? And this voice came back saying, I'm talking to grandma. Oh, gosh. Yes, yes. And he's your only son, is that right? He's my only, as it were, son of my genes, though I have um, an older son by marriage, uh, who I love very much. And uh, another son um, from previous marriage, stepson, uh, who's a soldier and uh, out there in the world. And going back to your... Arthurian legend squad of those of you doing everything you can think of in the garden, forging gold, etc. Yes. How how big was the squad? Because you said brother, is it brothers ancestors? Yeah, no, two uh, brothers, one older brother, one younger brother. Yes, yeah. And in the moment of going feral, it also reminded me of of cider with Rosie in the opening sort of page of that about just being thrown. Up you know, and yes. berries and long grass. Yes, and, grass and my, my family and other animals, Gerald Durrell, you know, similar. Yes. I mean, the thing is, as I think many of us know, you know, there was an awful lot that was wrong with the 50s uh, and some most, you know, rather tedious and sort of um, incredibly controlled and everyone in very stereotypical roles and all these sort of things. Mm. But I think as a child growing up in that world, if you was lucky enough to be... Um, with parents such as mine, you know, it was kind of unparalleled as an experience for a young human to exercise their imagination and who they were and enjoy the freedom of being able to get on your yes. bike and cycle for miles and miles without your parents knowing where you were, but trusting that wherever it was, you'd be fine. It was very good. And also, I like the fact that your the irony of your your mother's encouragement of you to go feral, and the kite string was so long that you could go feral for a year without any feedback, <laughs> is a testament to your own mother's courage in invoking you with the same spirit. I would say. Yes, I think it, it pushed her to her limits, but yeah, <laughs> she wanted to wind the string back in and see if you were yeah. still there pulling. Yeah. Lovely. But another one, so Chris, then the second, um, which, which was uh, traumatic, really, was, and these things are linked, but my two brothers excelled academically. 
And I was in the middle, and I was a spectacular uh, failure, really, in terms of academic. <laughs> and this was, my water out. <laughs> this was a mystery, really, to the family, but it was also a fact. So you know, they ended up sending me away to boarding school, whereas my two brothers, older and younger, went to schools you know, within walking distance or cycling distance of where we lived. And they did this because they knew that, or at least all the signs were, that I would fail my 11 plus. And in those days, that meant I'd go to the secondary modern school. And they felt that, that you know, that the, the uh, well, if I suppose for a family of the kind that I was in, that was a stigma. And they felt that I would always feel that I went, didn't go to the school like my brothers, all this kind of stuff. So they sent me away to school, but they had no way of knowing that they were sending me into a sort of a version of William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Wow. And, um, and it was an incredibly harsh um, and challenging environment. And because I was good at sport and, and fighting, I suppose, I, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd kept my head was above the waves and I developed many good friendships, but I still feel that Emotionally and psychologically, as it were, it was, it was and, and, and also in other ways, a, a deep mistrust of those in power and the abuse of power and um, the manipulative uh, and, and the, the ridiculous story that, that was promulgated within the school about sort of who we were and, and uh, misuse of words like honour and all the rest of it. So that had a big, big impact on me, and, and, and I still continue to fail. So I failed to get from the junior part of the school into the senior part of the same school, so it kept me down a year. I then, I then um, clawed my way with five O-levels uh, to get into the sixth form with uh, woodwork, general science, geography, history, which I managed to just memorise. And only now, about eight years ago, I discovered that I have a particular form of dyslexia called dyscalculia. Oh, gosh. And, and so everything to do with numbers, everything to do with any kind of logical sequence of things like parts of grammar, for instance, or learning a foreign language or, or um, uh, anything related to those things, I... I simply cannot do uh, brief moments of, of sort of lucidity when I sort of see it for a second and then it's gone again. And so I, I finally right, realized I, I am a, you know, a reasonably intelligent person and I'm, but, but I, in, in any kind of test of my, intellectual capacity as well that involves those sort of things i simply can't do it so i'll just say was, the label of the, the the path of dyslexia you have again dis dyscalculia dyscalculia absolutely yeah yeah and you know i mean it in one way you could say well what's such a big deal about that well i think the big deal is if you grow up believing that you're stupid yes if you grow up dreading Christmas and, and the board games that come out and that rammed home again and again and again would be that you would come last and, and you know and you would fail 
it created uh, all kinds of compensatory uh, sort of attitudes and ways of living. So a great emphasis on, on sport and activity like that because I could excel. And it was a mystery because I seemed to be bright enough and yet I couldn't, but nobody, nobody had any labels for it. Nobody understood it, uh, least of all myself. And of course, it brings into such sharp focus. It's the it depends on on what against we measure ourselves. You know that Einstein idea of you, if you measure a fish for its ability to climb a tree, it's going to feel quite crap about itself. Yes, 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 exactly. So I, you know, it had big big impacts, and and actually, <clears throat> perhaps like all challenges, not also negative because it 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 it. It almost prevented me from taking a part, uh, following a path similar to my brother's, and meant that I had to create and carve some kind of rather more uh, unique and creative um, pathway, and and also committed me almost to to a journey of discover, uh, exploration and discovery. That and then the happy accident then is the world is better and richer for that because you were an outlier in the right way, which now means you're able to be a visionary and see through patterns actually more acutely than many. Yes, I think I think it's true. Yes, it, it was hugely beneficial and ultimately led to me being able to share the gifts that I do have. Yeah. Lovely. Um, to move on. So, you know, being the age I am, I was alive and uh, a sort of... Uh, teenager in the time of the whole flower power movement, the whole hippie thing. So music, I mean, oh my God, like the sort of, I don't think you ever recover from that kind of thing. So, And you have got the surname. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but Jefferson Airplane, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, uh, Joan Byers, Bob Dylan, Quintessence, all these people, and Leonard Cohen. I mean, I remember, you know, sort of prostrate in some room in some kind of uh, uh, sort of drugged phase listening to Leonard Cohen when I was sort of 19 <laughs> and still I'm going to a Leonard Cohen concert in my uh, just shortly before he died I guess in the uh, late when in in my late 60s so to have somebody like that almost a parallel journey all the way through but the dream I got a backstage pass, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I wish the dreams of those times, the fact that we were, um, while it was all dream, no legs, if you like, you know, nonetheless, the, the dream of those times was that we can change the world. And, and it was also, it became later submerged, but was also a very strong one around reconnection with nature and the natural world they had a huge impact on me. Um, Which still I, informs your path to sustainability today, obviously. Yes, completely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and led to me actually a, a realisation that I was irredeemably lost to that world. Like to the, to the, to the, the I couldn't, it was almost like the, the experience of my early childhood was so profound that at a certain point, uh, round about when I was at that secondary school, I knew I had to leave that world because that's what being adult required. And then later the realization I couldn't do it. 
it would it would it would it would um, destroy me. That the only thing that really brought me a sense of of peace and inspiration and belonging was that same natural world. And so, the the the, the whole flower power movement also ended up as a realization that I was being given this invitation that I could not refuse, irrespective of the fact that that movement was. Uh, ultimately fatally flawed, collapsed and gave way to other things. But I was still stood there sort of thinking, well, then what to do next? And that led to um, well, we, one of the things that shaped me that. Uh, probably I'll miss, I'll wait for the inspired with that with the next piece, but, but took me ultimately to Wales, where I gave up my because uh, I was a teacher. I was a teacher for a while. Um, what were you teaching, uh, Mac? Well, I, I so I went to Loughborough College to do physical education, and you had to choose another topic. I chose English because I loved English, and I didn't love physical education by the time I got there, but I just thought it was the only thing I could do. So um, I decided, having done my uh, Bachelor of Education degree at Loughborough, I decided a new drama oh yes sorry I was doing English and then they came in and then the in the year one the head of drama came in and said you know there's um we don't have any men in in the drama as any of the men here in English like to do the drama you know you, you'd be you know the only man in the group or whatever and so I put both hands up and um and uh, moved straight across drama and discovered this wonderful world that that I adored and ended up teaching drama Stanley County Comprehensive in Ellesmere Port, which was uh, an interesting um, mix. Way, that, that's <laughs> resonant for me too, because I'm a drama teacher by training no, no. background. And, right. and similarly, I gate crashed to Westfield College, London University circuit from the Central School of Speech and Drama because they said, we haven't got many men. And so yeah. sort of pick apart any part for a few seasons. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So anyway, I then became head of drama in a school in Lincolnshire. But at this point, I loved the kids, but I couldn't bear the staff room. And I used to watch the groundsman on his tractor and think that looks pretty good to me. So I ultimately left and I went to North Wales and there the mountains. That's what I wanted to get round to, the mountains and the ancient stories that they hold. And the story of Anglesey, which, which as we mentioned before, that once was the Isle of Mona, the, all of this went really deep inside me. And I, I knew at that point what, whatever way things were going to work out, I would not lose faith with, this, with the love and the story that I had inside me about that there is a spiritual path that is not connected to belief, but is deeply connected to the experiencing of witnessing the world as it really is. So that was my things that shaped me. Did I move on? Or? Lovely shapage. Now, if there's any overlap, that's really fine too, okay. but now to three things that inspire you. Yes, so our Mother Earth, again and again and again and again and again forever. <laughs> a vision that I received in my early 20s of a valley, uh, a profound vision I had, I could see this valley 
and um, it was very, very beautiful um, in a, some kind of upland country. And, and I knew that it was a place that people came to and there would be many tears shed and a lot of laughter as well and, and, and some anger and all kinds of things. And we would grow food and, and people would live and, and they would learn and there'd be children as well. And, and I never lost that. In fact, it was so strong, a friend of mine painted it for me. Um, and I had that painting with me for many, many years. Now it's half burnt. I think a, a candle was placed on it and, you know, and whatever happened. But, <clears throat> and, but, but it was like a search. One day I would uh, find a way to, to occupy that valley and bring into uh, reality, physical reality, the, the, the dream that it held. Um, and the last one really was the indebtedness to indigenous people, indigenous history, indigenous wisdom. This um, percentage of human beings that have somehow um, clung on to their cult, uh, most of them actually utterly broken, ravaged, um, disrupted at a deeply traumatic level by our society, but nonetheless have held enough, even if it's fragmented, of a different way of living with this earth, a, 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 a sort of, to my mind, a, a, a ready-made offering to our modern society that we could decline the in insanity of the way that we currently live yes and find a way back into a less hubristic um more sort of just taking our seat in the council of all things um without having to be in charge or dominate or anything else uh, but belong again to the family of life and to them i think i owe uh, just everything they 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 deeply inspired me and they also helped me turn this um we could call it perhaps fantasy because there are many elements of it as a fantasy of my younger years in that flower power movement they managed to turn it into a no this is a real thing and there's a discipline to it and there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of of me trying to actually um develop aspects of myself that I hadn't before and be brave enough to uh, hold my head up and speak and write what I believe to be right and true, irrespective of how it might be received. Uh, so it's really, really, really important. And of course, the, the punchline of the uh, the physical manifestation of what was your vision was Embercombe, obviously, that came to be. The yes. Valley. Yes, it the did. Calling and the, and the physical did. place. I mean, and it made me think of the mists of Avalon as well. I know that's a parallel. Yeah. With the idea of the, the fog clears and, oh, a mystical yeah. place is there. And, you know, and how do these things happen, Chris? I mean, I, I mean, to, to begin with, I tried to make the money illegally uh, and that got me into a lot of trouble and, and very dangerous sort of um, episodes. Then I had the good sense uh, of walking away from that and, 
and then ultimately, uh, then I realized that actually there's only other, one other way to do it that I knew of, and that is to earn it. Uh, and you're never going to do that on a salary. So then you have to start some kind of business. And so ultimately, I start a business. Um, this is, by the way, all the time remembering the discalculia. Absolutely. Yes. So the first, my first person I reel in close to me is someone I trust who understands numbers. <laughs> And, uh, and it was a whole accident anyway, because I was the gardener in a leadership development center and intervened in a fight between two saints for his ex and, and it went well, uh, got a good outcome. And um, so they asked me to start facilitating and become one of the consultants. From there, I learned enough to be able to start my own business. And then armed with a, one of the first ever mobile phones, like a sort of small brick and um, <clears throat> two suits from a gift from my auntie Barbara and a false address in London where somebody would answer it saying um, my company name and how can we help you <laughs> I began to build a business and um, by the way what a lovely founder story of being there breaking up a fight where you got off your tractor metaphorically yeah, yes, yes break up the fight it went so well they thought blimey you could come and facilitate our events that's right and, and I, that was exciting to me and it was fun. It was also, uh, as was the Vogue in those days, um, leadership development, taking execs out into the mountains yes. and on the sea and rivers and things. So it was a nice fusion, nice bringing together. And you must have the, the Sainsbury's reward card of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Sainsbury's, I think, have long since forgotten. <laughs> but it's good they should re-remember because how brilliant that you broke up the yeah. fight fantastic and then ultimately moving to london because i realized i had to do that to make the business flourish and then the company started in russia and then in poland and the polish company still exists and the whole aim was one day to sell the organization make the money to get the valley um but in the few occasions that i was offered uh, somebody came forward willing to buy it. It was never a, su a sum that I thought was in any way commensurate with the blood, sweat and tears that had gone into creating it. Until one day a client came to me from the Lloyds of London insurance market. And at that time, Lloyds of London was imploding and people were losing fortunes. And <clears throat> he said, we, we believe we're going to be like a phoenix rising through the ashes of this mess and make a, a, a really vast commercial fortune. But when that time comes, we'd like to be able to put our hand on our hearts and say we did it with integrity. We did it uh, with our values intact. Would you work with us? So I did. They sold the company to Warren Buffett five years later. Uh, they made an untold amount. Uh, I don't know how much, but an awful lot of money. And then he said, I'd like to thank you. And uh, I said, well, you know, you've paid me well over these five years and my company. And actually, it's been an amazing ride we've had. And he said, yes, and that's good. But, uh, you know, there's still a gift. Um, and do you have a dream? I said, yes, it's a valley. And I described the valley. And he said, well, what do you need to make this happen? I said, I need the valley. So uh, he gave me the money that bought 50 acres of Devon and then put that into a charity and that became Embercoom. And so the, that was whatever it was, 25 years or so ago now. 
Wow, that that's given me goosebumps. I had heard of that story, and it's so mm. lovely to get it from your lips, actually. Yeah. The idea that someone was so, a bit like Victor Kayan, we liked you so much, we bought the company. <laughs> yes, yes. No, it was amazing, and, and I'll be seeing him again in a, in a few weeks. Um, you know, we're friends. He's no longer in, in putting money into Embercoon. Um, but without him, you know, countless thousands of people now would never have had the experiences rough or smooth that they ever that they experience at Endicum. Yes. Um, he, he, he is an extraordinary person because he's he's also put immense amounts of money into all kinds of other projects uh, which have been beneficial to land or people. Um, and that is philanthropy at its most beautiful right there. It is. It is. Yes. yes. And interesting that Warren Buffett is in the mix of that too. It is interesting. Yes. 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 So there we are. We. Um, so back to you. I'll, I can guide you along if you think, where are we? Because you're doing a brilliant job, by the way. Thank you. So do you need well, a nudge or are you still in the trees? I, I think we're on two things. Yes, um, two things that never fail to grab your attention. This is the what are your squirrels of distraction? What squirrels? So what never fails no. to grab your attention? That's interesting, actually, Chris, because I, I, don't, I wouldn't call it distraction, but they never fail to grab my attention. And this has not always been, one of them has always been so, the other hasn't. So for my family. <laughs> my, my family, you know, uh, is, <clears throat> we could say that maybe for the first 50 years or so of my life, if not more, the family was not really... Um, uh, uh, that much. I mean, I think it was important, but it certainly wasn't something I would have mentioned. Uh, but now my family is, and I will make do whatever I have to do to make sure that I have enough time uh, to give my family. That includes my my wife, my, the the one who's a young man who's left home, and the little one. <coughs> the other is children in general. I just love them. I, I, I find it very difficult, uh, you know, to pass. I find them endlessly fascinating, interesting and deeply moving. I see these little people, you know. Um, I mean, yesterday, so my, my little boy uh, had played with another boy in the street who was uh, probably nine or ten years old, so nearly double. And something had gone wrong, so he'd returned in tears, you know. And when I came into the kitchen, I found them speaking to each other. And my little boy was on the doorstep of our front door, explaining to the older one uh, why he, his feelings had been hurt. And he, he, and he said, you know, you have, he said, you, you know, you, do you know, do you understand I'm only five? <laughs> oh, how lovely. <laughs> so it was just like, so, but it's not just him. It's That's so wise. <laughs> it's all children. One other question he came up with the other day is, does God control my life? In which I just thought, wow. You know, that's... Good luck answering that one in a one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, but it's just children in general. I just feel like, wow, if we only serve them well. Which we... coming full circle is the children's fire again, right there. Yes. Yes. So if we designed uh, their their learning experience we call education you know to try to create a healthy happy 
well-balanced, rounded young person who most importantly of all feels good about themselves, feels good about who they are, irrespective of whatever talents they have or do not have or their circumstances in life. You know, that should be the purpose of education and not, not fodder for the economy that, that needs more of this or whatever. So if, if we were inviting them really to ask the sort of questions of understanding what it is that they really love and value in this life and what their gifts are uh, on, on, the, on the assumption that they have gifts. Yes. Profound gifts to share and also what their responsibilities are and how they exercise the power that they have and the, and the influence that they undoubtedly have. Mm. And so their, their moral, philosophical, spiritual uh, questions, which don't deny also the acquisition of knowledge and everything, but as we all know, you know, to be, to be clever is a wonderful thing. But uh, cleverness without wisdom guiding it is, is actually pretty terrifying. So it's the reorientation, all these things. And I was um, reintroduced to something called Shoshin, which is probably <coughs> the, the Japanese construct of Shoshin, the beginner's mindset. In right. the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. So in the childlike mind and perspective, mm. but mm. in the expert's mind, there are few. Yes. So going back to innocence and asking questions anew for sustainability. Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, anyway, so yes. it, would be, it would be, it could help us enormously as we negotiate these immense challenges which we face now. And back to your okay. son's beautiful question, don't you understand, I'm only five. That's yeah, so brilliant. Yes. Yeah, only five. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we could be now onto a quirky or unusual fact about you, Mac, we couldn't know until you tell us. This, you know, of all the questions, this was the most difficult for me, Chris, because I've made a, a kind of career out of sharing pretty much anything and everything, <laughs> um, you know. So I really genuinely struggled with it. One thing I just came up with, but I have, I'm not sure if it's a little bland, but anyway, um, ever since I heard of the Aditarod race, that goes over a thousand miles of Alaska, dog sledge, uh, 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 driving dogs. I wanted to do that race. A detour rod. A detour rod. Yes. I, 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 T, I, D, I, T, A, R, O, D. Race. Lovely. And, and when, when did you hear about it? Well, I heard, I, I can't even remember now, but you know, um, couple of decades, three decades ago, something like that. And so have you done it? <laughs> no, I haven't, no. But it, and it's a most, I mean, it's a most incredibly heart challenging journey. You have, to, you have to learn how to run a dog team and then you've got to manage this dog team over 2,000, no, 1,000 miles of wild country. And I have driven Huskies. So I went, to the, north, I went to the north of Finland and I learned how to drive a team of huskies. That's and a mini Editarod then, you did. <laughs> and I had an incredible time. Loved, yeah. it, loved the dogs, loved the whole thing. But there was, there did come a time 
when I suddenly realized, I thought, I've missed this. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't have the physical robustness that I would need to undertake this with any chance of not, I'm not doing that winning. I'm just talking about completing it alive. You know? well, at, the very, at the very least, you could bring somebody who's done it to come and speak at Ember. <laughs> yes, yes, I could. That's a very good idea. And right? you can then enjoy it vicariously. Yes, I, yes. I, I've done that. <laughs> You've done a micro one. Yes. Yeah. That is a very, although you thought you couldn't think of one, that is a great, quirky or unusual fact. Lovely. Good. So to drive you along now, we're staying in the clearing. We're moving away from the tree. And thank you for that wonderful shapage of the 54321. So now um, you've been giving me this by the bucket load anyway, but alchemy and gold now, when you're at purpose and in flow, Mac McCartney, it's it really implicit in what you've been doing anyway. But um, when you're at purpose and in flow, what are you absolutely happiest doing in what you're here to reveal to the world? Yeah. So I would some years ago have said uh, speaking um, because even though I was terrified of speaking publicly, utterly terrified when those Native Americans asked me to do it. And I demurred, you know, and, and they said, um, sorry, you, you seem to have misunderstood. It's not a request, it's an instruction. <laughs> and, and, then I, and then I followed this up by saying, you don't understand, I'm utterly terrified of speaking publicly and have experienced um, you know, massive, um, uh, what we call panic attacks that would render me speechless. And they're still nodding and smiling and saying, yes, that's okay. And I'm saying, no, thinking that I really eclipsed them with this. I said, I, I would stand there and just weep. And they're still smiling and they say, that's fine. You know, they say, can you imagine what would happen, Mac? Uh, there's just a bit of a fanfare introduction. You march onto the stage, you stand there, and there they are, serried ranks of hundreds of whoever, whatever popular audience it is and then you slowly dissolve into tears and keep it up for 40 minutes and then walk off stage who would ever forget <laughs> oh that's a beautiful story because i'm i'm i do teach on presentation skills as well as right. well as well so i love that yes and and and, and by this time i'm utterly defeated because i realize that they will never let me off the hook you know so i would have said speaking but now, of course, I've done a lot of speaking. And I'm far quieter than I used to be. I was more dramatic, I think, in the early days. I'm not dramatic now. I have no, there is only one thing I, before I speak, I offer a few sort of words or thoughts into the, out the window usually, to, of the place that I'm, in asking only that I um, be worthy of the trust that's been shown in me and, and speak true as best I know it without pretense. And, um, and then that's what I try and do. So yet still, so I might say writing of which I was uh, not quite as terrified, but also very terrified because Imagine writing a book, if you believe you're stupid, is a bit like sort of, you know, 
asking someone to just, you know, publicly if you be humiliated, as it were. Um, I would have said that. But now, <clears throat> it's wherever I am and in whatever circumstance I'm in, to be fully present to, to, the, to the joy of just being alive at this time, not any time perhaps, but given where I am now, at this time, in the circumstances I have with enough food to, to eat, water to drink, as it were, this lovely, gorgeous, um, noisy family, you know, the, the, the uh, Devon, which has become home, even though I, I, I venture out, of course, and go to different places. But just like, how could it possibly have worked out this way? You know, this is incredible. There is a quote, I can't remember, it might be George Bernard Shaw, but to live while you are alive, you know, is, is a, I think a big thing because many of us don't. And through a mixture of, um, of good choices and, and just blundering around, I've somehow managed to find a place where I am really living while I am alive. And so it would be, um, it would be uh, regardless of whatever the circumstances, place or anything, but to be in that state of mind is the place that I love to be. And now I'm going to award you with a cake and rather than splatch it in your face, uh, this is where you get to put a cherry on the cake at Mac McCartney. And this is the final rich storytelling metaphor of stuff like what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? What's a favorite inspirational quote that's always given you sucker like the George Bernard Shaw one you just gave us rather deliciously uh, that's pulled you towards your future. And then we're going to get on to Shakespeare finally. And you'll notice he's in the foliage of my trees as well. Shakespeare is um, about legacy and how when all is said and done, borrow from the seven ages of man, you would most like to be remembered. So have a cake and how would you like to interpret it? Um. Advice to the younger self, younger version of myself, uh, commit to the journey. Uh, I was, I'm, I was not committed to the journey. I was committed to the, to the end, end point. Um, and, and I was always trying to avoid the journey. I think when, when we come into some, some kind of uh, peaceful acceptance that there is a journey and that every moment of the journey is 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 to be savored and experienced and felt even i mean it's a little bit like love loving you you know that the moment if should this ever arrive that you're willing to love you know that you will um hurt in in time because you'll have to say goodbye one way or another uh, and and yet you know to live a life without loving was you know who, who could possibly want to do that? So committing to the journey felt like the thing. Um, the, the, the best advice I ever received, I think the, the, the best thing I did was ignore most, almost all of the advice I ever received um, <clears throat> because uh, it was almost always came loaded with some kind of agenda or, or 
wanting me to to somehow fit in with something that I I don't think would have been good. But the but following that, what I spoke to you earlier, I did receive most wonderful instruction, and that was uh, Mac. You've been you have not been brought to us by some sort of erratic, irrational, just sort of wisp of the wind, as it were. You're, you have a you have a destiny, and there is there is only one thing you have to do, and that is fulfill and 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 undertake that destiny, and that is that you have come to understand and realize that you love this Mother Earth, you love life and all these things. You need to speak up. You need to speak up forever until you have no breath left in you to do so. That is what you must do. And put if, I may, if I may, who gave you that advice? Did you remember the source of it? The, my Native American friends. Yes. Right. They, they, Sorry they to were, and they, they said, you know, you, you'll lose yourself if you ask yourself, will it, will it be enough? Or will it have impact? These are not relevant questions because you, you don't have um, the ability to, to decide that. All you have to know is what it, what it is mine to do and then do it best you can. After that, everything else is whatever it is. And I was thinking, Chris, you know, um, in terms of the quote, um, though I think it can be a bit misunderstood, but I think as Polonius meant it in, in uh, was it uh, Hamlet? Hamlet, yeah. Yes. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as, as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. And I don't think it's an invitation to selfishness and egotism, if, as it were. I think... It's an invocation to authenticity, actually. I it love is. it. It is. And, there, and, and, and that is a sort of way of trying to allow choices and guide. And it doesn't mean also not being interested and in listening to other opinions and other ways of seeing the world at all. It just means that the moment we step away from that, we, we begin to lose ourselves. And then we're just blown around by the opinions and ideas and whatever of, of others. And, and there's no keel to our ship. Yeah. And in the joys of reincorporation, just say the Polonius quote again. I did hear it, but it's just nice yes. to reposition it. To thine own self be true. And it must follow as with night, as the night, the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man woman or person i'm just adding those myself forgive me no that's fine my acting teacher would say shakespeare's probably wrote it quite well enough you don't need to add more stuff less is more is one of my own things <laughs> um, i don't self be true and by the way, that's a delicious segue into the Shakespeare now, because you've been giving us that. But uh, when all is said and done, um, how would you most like to be remembered, Mac? Um, I'd love to be, only if it's true, I would love to be remembered as a, a good man 
who uh, we did what he could to assist this world to a, a happier, more peaceful, resolved uh, way. And to borrow another line from Hamlet, and the rest is silence. Delicious episode, if I may say so. Um, where can we find out more about you on the internet for those that would like to find out more about the wonderment of Mac McCartney? Sure. So if they go to embercombe.org, uh, that's embercombe.org, and also macmccartney.com. On both those uh, sites, you'd find me. I, 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 I have a presence on Facebook, but I hardly ever uh, look at it or engage with it, I'm afraid. And uh, um, But that's more to do with just my inability to deal with too many platforms. And now that I've uh, just recently got somebody who's come and volunteered to help me in my work, I may suddenly pop up and reappear on a certain number of places. But for now, those two sites would be the best place to look. Wonderful. And as this has been your moment in the sunshine of the Good Listening To show, is there anything else you'd like to say, Mac McCartney? Yes, I think this. Um, there was a time when I thought I'd been born out of time, the wrong time, a time that really didn't suit me at all well and that I couldn't fit in. Uh, I've come to to understand that this is this is a perfect time. This is, you know, a most wonderful, extraordinary time, and uh, there is an awful lot of difficulty and a lot of uh, sort of many fearful things um, out there in the world and happening all around us. We need to understand, I believe, that it's in our collective choice the outcome it sits with us and and most of us uh, believe somehow that we have no agency in the world and i would say uh, if enough people began to sit up link hands join together uh, we could shift this in whatever we define this as but let's say most people would like to live in a world that was just, that was peaceful, that was prosperous, that in the, and in which all other life form flourished as well. It's with us, but for as long as we somehow sit on our hands and choose only to be observers and sympathize or empathize and do take um, very small, if ever, actions, which bear no relation to our potential, then the likelihood is we will hand this world over to others with, with rather more sinister motives or, or at least the profound ignorance that seems to pervade um, many parts of our culture. So that's it really, is engage and lift your voice and speak true and never give up. You get knocked down, which is almost inevitable, that's okay. It's like me trying to learn to drive my team of Huskies. As the guy said to me, he said, the only thing that really matters is keep hold of those, uh, the leather that connects you to the dogs. Never, ever let go because they will run and you'll be left there. So all you have to do when you fall over is get up again. 
and keep hold. So thank you so much for sincerely gracing us with your presence here in the Good Listening To Show. This has been uh, the international speaker, writer and changemaker, Mac McCartney. I've been Chris Grimes. This has been the Good Listening To Show. Thank you, Mac. And you. I'll stop recording there. Good night. Here comes the outro and keep listening if you want to. There's a quick Captain's Log supplemental about Greta Thunberg and Mac McCartney too, if you'd like to hear that. Thank you for listening. Here comes the outro and my son's Dan. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Good Listening To Show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's... At that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio, and from Stan... To your good health. And goodbye. This is just a quick Captain's Log supplemental. When I was thinking about the children's fire, I thought about Greta Thunberg as well and wondered whether she, for you, the question is, she's almost like a sort of walking personification of what that needs to be in terms of sustainability. So I wondered if you've had any connection with her um, over time. Well, I've had connection with her, though I haven't met her. Um, I was... um, I'd somehow found my way to Davos uh, just before COVID uh, during the Davos event. And somebody approached me saying that Greta was aware of the children's fire and my work was very supportive of it. And then later I was invited to the last COP um, to, to, and um, uh, by people linked uh, with Greta. So um, she's she's sort of as it were there, and I'd love to meet her. You know, she's a she's a courageous and wonderful young woman. But I think um, the other thing, just to add to that, is of course now she is she is world famous. You know, this extraordinary iconic figure. But it's those millions of other uh, young people, and many of them girls, of course, but but girls, boys, whatever, all. Um, who probably um, will never be known, who, who I want to celebrate something. These, these are in every village, town, city, goodness knows where, who are somehow um, possibly touched or inspired by Greta or someone else or something else who are doing what they can. So I love that. I really love it. I love the inclusivity and the sense of ongoing community and sustainability in that. Mm. Um, and I, I would really love to come and visit. I've not been to Embercombe, but I would absolutely love, I'd love to meet you and I'd love to come to Embercombe at some point. Yeah, well, let me know, Chris, when you would. And, and I'd be absolutely delighted to meet you and show you around the place or do whatever. Yeah. And I know, and um, I'm, I said this at the very beginning, but I was really chuffed when you said yes, without any... Who are you? There was no sense of you just said yes straight away when I connected with you, which I, I was very um, yeah, touched well, I, by. I was really happy to do so. And I, I do feel, you know, sometimes there's a need for who are you or, you know, but but if I don't feel that, then I don't not inclined to sort of, um, you know, you know, I'd just say yes. And I looked at it, read it and I thought, yes. So. He's a man after my own heart, and I do comedy improvisation as well. And there is this mindset of yes and yes and yes and. And if you say yes more in life, windows on yes. lubricated hinges open up. 
But yes. you've got to be very good in being precious with what you, you've got to be discerning also I'm respectful of. Yeah. Um, have you heard of a chap called David Hyatt, by the way, who runs the Do Lectures in Wales? I have. Heard, I've heard of the Do Lectures. I haven't heard of David, but I've, uh, and I've, I've often thought I'd love to speak there, but I've never received an invitation and I haven't sort of um, followed up. But David Hyatt, perhaps I should. David Hyatt. Hyatt. Um, Hyatt. Um, I hope I don't do him a disservice. T, I believe it is. David Hyatt, the Do Lectures. I went to a, um, a Do Big Ideas workshop last Friday. Interestingly, in a parallel sort of world, uh, he's got a similar cut and thrust of sustainability that you have. I'm wanting to get him as a guest, but mm. I'm just having to get over a few. He's very precious with his time in, in a way right. that we all need to be. So I'm, again, very respectful. Yes. It was a, but, but anyway, the Do Lectures are obviously something you should think about as well. Mm. Uh, mm. And so... Also, there's a um, chap called Dave Stewart from a company called Fresh Air Leadership who takes business leaders outdoors that I must connect you to as well. And it's all about, you know, going to um, you know, amazing team events in amazing Scottish places. Uh, great. He'd be someone else for you to, to connect to on LinkedIn if you want to. I would love to. Yes, yes. Dave Stewart, but not of Eurythmics fame, but um, <laughs> he's a lovely, wonderful, <clears throat> ger generous, spirited man, Dave Stewart. Anyway, um, sincerely thank you it's been a, a joy and a delight thank you yeah thanks chris go well <laughs>